Saddam Hussein, Jesse Jackson, and a Boston crack house. Today on The Pursuit, Aaron Graham. Welcome to The Pursuit, unfiltered conversations with faith leaders about their journey to pursue God. I'm your host, Richard Lee, and today my guest is Aaron Graham. Aaron is the founder and lead pastor of the District Church in Washington, D.C. He's also a graduate of Harvard's Kennedy School and received his doctorate from Fuller Theological Seminary. Aaron doesn't mess around, apparently. His journey has taken him all across the world and back and even included a time as a hostage in Iraq as a 10-year-old. Yeah, you heard me correctly. When you experience such a dramatic display of God's faithfulness, at such a young age, is it any wonder that his life and career since then would simply be a life of gratitude? You spent some time overseas as a missionary kid. I did, yeah, growing up between the ages of six and 10. Yeah, so tell me, where were you? So in 1986, my family, we moved to Liberia in West Africa. My dad was working at a school, a boarding school called Rick's Institute, and um, I lived there for three years. Did you miss America? Um, I didn't really know what to miss in America at the age of six, so right. I missed when we left. I cried when we left. I remember kissing the walls of my house (laughs) and praying that I would return one day. (laughs) Did you ever return to that house? Yes. I took my kids to that house um, this summer when I was on sabbatical. And then you moved over to uh, the Middle East. Yeah, we did. Um, The Civil War broke out in Liberia. We lost all of our stuff there. And then we moved to this tiny little country that nobody had heard of at the time called Kuwait. And um, my parents had gone on a vision trip there and brought me back a a t-shirt when we were living in Tennessee. And it said, where in the world is Kuwait? And it had a picture of the Middle East and this little dot where (laughs) Kuwait was. And so we moved there in 1990, May of 1990. As missionaries, you went as missionaries. As missionaries, yeah. So in a Muslim country, there was this small little um, compound uh, that was where you were able to freely worship. And my dad was invited to be the pastor of the English-speaking congregation. A lot of nationalities live in Kuwait, and this was the one place that people could freely worship Christ. And uh, so we moved there in 1990, and uh, it was only three months later that Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, and that was uh, the beginning of the what became the Persian Gulf War. Three months. Mm-hmm. So how did when Saddam invaded, how did that affect you? So it was August 2nd, 1990, and my brother woke up about 5 a.m. He was used to being woken um, early in the morning because of the garbage man, but this noise didn't go away. So he went into my parents' room, woke them up and said, hey, what's this noise um, that's going on? And um, they didn't know what was going on. So they turned on the radio and it turned out that we found out that Saddam Hussein had come across the Kuwait border. Saddam Hussein had the fourth largest army in the world at the time in Iraq. There were 650,000 Iraqi troops. Wow. And um, and so I don't know how many of them came over to Kuwait, but Kuwait had pretty much a non-existent army. And we lived uh, across the street from the parliament building. And so we heard fighting and gunshots and planes going above our heads. And um, we found out that, wow, Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait. And then soldiers started knocking on the doors of our apartment 
and broke into our apartment downstairs and harassed us all day, harassed my mom. And there's about four sets of troops that came in. And so it was, it got pretty real fast uh, for me as a 10 year old. So what happened to the ministry that your dad was doing? So um, everything came to a halt during the war. We were actually taken hostage during that experience. Taken hostage. Mm -hmm. So we were, um, we weren't able to leave right when Saddam Hussein came across the border into Kuwait. Uh, George H.W. Bush ordered U.S. troops to go to Saudi Arabia and hundreds of thousands of them and about, I think it was maybe 60 countries came from across the world. Uh, the whole world was against Saddam Hussein because right. they didn't want him coming into Saudi Arabia. You know, there's oil money, it's economic reasons as well. And they were trying to push him back out of Kuwait because Kuwait, I think, was the third largest producer of oil in the world at the time. And, um, and so because most of the West, all of the West was against Saddam Hussein, he started taking Westerners from England and Australia and the U.S. hostage and using them as human shields to prevent the U.S.-led coalition. To halt the attack, basically, a bargaining chip. Yeah, we were part of the, the, those human shield. So we were in the American embassy. They cut off our electricity and our water. And, um, we weren't, I didn't have like a gun to my back, you know, for six weeks, but we had troops surrounding the walls where we were being held and we couldn't leave. And we had to just live off the food that we had there. Um, and it was like 115 degree heat in the summer of Kuwait. Um, how many people were in the embassy with you? Started with about 150, I would say. And then women and children who were diplomats uh, were released. Um, they actually got in a caravan and drove to Baghdad. And then the men got put in military installations, but the women and children left under kind of international rules and war that protect women and children. But we weren't diplomats. So we were the only two kids that stayed back in the embassy. And we were there for another three, four weeks. Wow. And then Jesse Jackson came over and negotiated with Iraq um, to have um, all the women and children who were being held hostage released. And so we were the only ones in the embassy, but my mom, my brother and I all were able to come home in mid-September. Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson. Negotiated your release. Yep. <laughs> Reverend Jesse Jackson. Yes. I feel like that should be, you know, like in your byline, in your bio, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. That's fascinating. So you're 10 years old, but you're, you're, and you're sitting in this embassy, you know, now it's six weeks and you know that you know now that you got out safely, but at the time you had no idea no. how long or how it was going to end or whatever. Yeah. I'm seeing dead bodies as a 10 year old. I'm not knowing what's going on. And so it got really real for me fast. And I kind of had this sense with God that I was like, God, if you bring me out of this, I'm going to serve you the rest of my life. You said that. Yeah. I was like, I was like, God, you got to get me out of this. And if you do, I'm yours because my life is not my own. So that was, and then my dad, so then we were separated from my dad for three months. Tell me about that. That was really hard on my mom. We were back in Tennessee and that was really hard on my mom. So you, Jesse Jackson got you released and your mom and your brother, but not your dad. Yeah. Um, that was really hard on my mom. Where was he? What, what did he? He was still in the American embassy with about 20 people who were left, including the ambassador, the deputy ambassador, and then some other men who were not diplomats, but who were Westerners. And they lived off they lived off tuna fish and rice for three months, and they had gotten to a point where they had pretty much run out of everything. Wow! And um, it was gonna be, they were gonna have to surrender to the to the Iraqis, 
And I just had this strong sense that my dad was going to come home. Like I wasn't that worried about it. I was just kind of like when, not if, but that's a 10 year old, right. right? Faith of a 10 year old. Yeah. Faith of a child. Right. Like, yeah. But yeah, it's actually, you know, and it was the first week of December in 1990 when Saddam Hussein had been complaining throughout parts of the fall and the State Department and President Bush had gotten wind of this, that Saddam Hussein had been complaining about having dreams at night, that God had been troubling his spirit in the middle of the night and that he wasn't able to sleep. Well, it got so bad by the first week of December um, that he woke up one morning, called his whole cabinet together, and he ordered them to release. This is the commander of the fourth biggest army in the world, commanded them to release the I don't know how many it was, maybe 100, 200 hostages that were in Kuwait and Iraq. Because of bad dreams. Because of bad dreams. Wow. And it was not, there was no human explanation for it because it was really the only thing that Saddam had because the whole world was against him besides his big army, but his army was not as advanced as you know, the US and England and other armies. And so he literally just released them. And for those who are old enough who are listening to this, will know that that happened in December. And then by mid-January, the, the air campaign started and, and uh, we were bombing um, Baghdad. That bombing was going to be made much more difficult if there were civilian, U.S. civilians that, whose lives could have been lost on really folks from all different countries and uh, Iraqi civilians and Kuwaiti civilians. So that was really um, a breakthrough. And in fact, my dad went back in 1996 to reopen the U.S. embassy that was rebuilt after the war. Your dad went back to open the embassy? Yeah, just to be a part of the ceremony. And, and so President H.W. Bush was there and my dad asked him, he said, so why, like, what is the explanation for why Saddam Hussein released the troops? And I mean, this is the president of the United States who was formerly the vice president, who was formerly the CIA director. So if there's anybody that has intelligence, it would be this guy, right? Right. And he says, I have no, there's no explanation for why he did this. He said, all I know is it made my job a lot easier. He's baffled. Yeah, he's baffled. Oh my gosh. So it's, you know, for me and my walk with Christ and my story, it's like, well, this makes sense to me because like, there's a story about a king in Babylon named Nebuchadnezzar thousands of years ago, who God troubled his spirit in the night yeah. and he couldn't sleep and he had dreams and God raised up this guy, Daniel, um, to speak truth to him. And Nebuchadnezzar was like this like evil leader, but yet sometimes would be used to advance God's purposes. And here's Saddam Hussein in the same land and, you know, ancient Babylon, modern day Iraq, oh, man. having the same thing that God did with Cyrus and with Nebuchadnezzar. And so I just grew up um, from an early age with this strong sense that God answers prayers, that God can do supernatural things, right. and that God can move on the hearts of even the most wicked leaders in our world and, and cause them to do His will and not the evil one's will. And so that's really shaped a lot of who I am to this day. The last thing I'll say about that is that the first week of December is the week of prayer for international missions with the International Mission Board, with whom we were served as missionaries, largest missionary organization out there. There's like 5,000 missionaries across the world. And that's when the dream happened. Yeah. And people were praying specifically for my dad's release. Wow. And to this day, when I meet pastors and other people, like I, when I met Rick Warren for the first time, he was like, I remember praying specifically for your dad. And, um, and so it's just really cool how, you know, there was millions of people praying for my family and for my dad and obviously for, for what was going on in the Middle East then and just to see what happened and how God spared my life. 
has really shaped who I am today because I realize that my story is not the story of most kids that are caught in conflict and war. And that, you know, I grew up as a privileged kid from America who has aircraft carriers and others that will be sent to their rescue when they're in harm. <laughs> but most kids in the world don't. And, and it's like, it's, it's a really sad thing. So it really has shaped my, my calling to justice, my sense of responsibility, my sense of identity and ownership of my privilege um, has really been shaped by those two stories of being in Liberia and seeing kids die of preventable causes and then being in Kuwait at a young age and seeing people killed and seeing me released, but a lot of other kids you know, not come out of a war safe like I did. So, yeah. So, I mean, you've talked about how this sort of affected your faith, Mm -hmm. but it also must have been traumatic. There must have been trauma. Yeah. So it's interesting how everybody deals with trauma in different ways and different stages. And so my mom, my brother, my dad and I, we all experienced trauma in different ways in different seasons. So mine happened right when we got back, when my dad got back And I started having nightmares regularly. We went to family counseling Mm. and my dad's a therapist. So it was like, we didn't think twice about like, hey, we're going to go do therapy. Or they didn't think twice about that. But yeah, I would would wake up in sweats in the middle of the night, run into my parents' room. I thought I was going to get killed or other things. I mean, it was just, it makes sense. I mean, when you see what I saw at a young age, but within like a year or two, um, or maybe even a few months, I came out of that by God's grace. And um, you know, through the therapist, um, giving me strategies, like whenever you're having a bad dream and that machine's coming, like stick, like imagine you're sleeping with a stick and stick that stick into the machine and it will stop it. And you won't, you know, <laughs> and I was like, okay, well it's like for a 10 year old nine, I guess that helps. So, right, right. but just a lot of prayers from my parents and others. So, so I was really brought through that, but, but I dealt with it like head on early. And then um, my mom was dealing with it as it was happening, right? Like, I mean, right, sure. she would like, it sent her back into it. She had her tightened up her back. She was down on her back and all these things. And so she dealt with it um, and it manifested physically for her with, with different kind of pain. And yeah. um, my dad dealt with it um, a little bit later, you know, it's like a typical father trying to take care of the family and dealt with it a few years later. My brother maybe even a decade later, maybe like even in college or something. And so, you know, my point is, is like trauma, people deal with it, you know, at different, different times and ways. And this summer when we were on sabbatical, went back to Kuwait and got to take my kids to, and Amy, my wife, to the apartment that we were living in when the soldiers, you know, broke into our house that first day, took them to the spot where the embassy was standing. We went to the new embassy and the, the U.S. ambassador gave us a tour. And yeah. the question people were asking me as I was going in there, like, are you okay? Do you think this is going to trigger trauma? And I was like, I don't think so. But, you know, who knows? 28 years later. <laughs> yeah. And um, it didn't really, it, if anything, it, it, it just stirred up gratefulness in my heart mm. and just the opportunity to tell my kids and for them to tell hopefully their kids of God's faithfulness and his goodness. And one of the most moving experiences was we went to worship at the church that my dad was the English pastor for. And there's a couple hundred people there. It's actually an English speaking service, but I don't, I think we were maybe the only Americans there. Mm -hmm. It's a Nigerian pastor and just the nations are gathered in the service. And uh, they start singing How Great Thou Art, classic hymn. Uh, Why it was so significant is that when we were in the embassy being held hostage, my dad would lead an evening like chapel devotional service. And there was this dude that would come to it that every night would request that we would sing How Great Thou Art. So there's so many nights (laughs) there that we would sing How Great Thou Art and just to, to sing it 
28 years later and um, it was just really moving. And then to see there, I think there's like 90 nationalities that worship at this small little compound, even today in Kuwait. Mm -hmm. And um, as you leave this compound, there's this huge sign that says, go and preach the gospel to all nations. And you see like the skyscrapers in Kuwait and a majority Muslim country on the other side of it. Yeah. It's just really amazing what the Lord is doing. And, you know, countries all across this world where, you know, people are just being so faithful to the gospel and, you know, they're working low wage jobs in other countries, but the church might feel like it's underground or literally be underground but the kingdom's still advancing. Yeah. So that was really encouraging for me to see that. So you eventually returned to the States mm-hmm. and you settled down in Richmond. Absolutely. Richmond, Virginia, suburbs, a little culture shock. Was there, yeah, I was going to say, was there, was there a culture shock? Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I came back and I think I was in um, sixth grade and I was just like, didn't know how to dress cool. I think I had like tube socks with stripes on them. Those weren't cool. Like <laughs> yeah, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia for middle school, high school, and then college as well. And then after you graduate college, you go, uh, you make your way up to Boston. Yeah. Went up to Boston. Um, really felt called to go live and work among the poor and um, had been serving as a summer missionary in Boston between my junior and senior year and had really gotten connected um, in some of the under-resourced communities in Boston and really just felt led to Matthew 10 style, when Jesus sends out his disciples, he says, take nothing with you, go rely on other people to take care of you and go look for those people of peace. And that's like, literally, I just took Matthew 10 literally. So what does that mean? Like I gave everything I had away. Literally, I gave my car away and everything. You took a one-way bus? Yeah, one-way flight. Yeah. It was like, I think it was okay. AirTran. So it was like less than a hundred bucks for a one-way flight. Oh yeah. I remember AirTran. And I had a, I had like a backpack, um, like one of those big backpack camping packpacks. And that's everything I, I own was in there. Um, just had a couple hundred bucks to my name. And I was like, God, you're going to have to leave me. I didn't know where I was going to literally even stay that first night. So you land at the airport at Logan yeah. and the first step out of the airport, what do you do? I just got on the um, bus to, to the subway, to the bus to go to Dorchester and just like see if I could find anybody <laughs> that I knew from before. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it was like, I was prepared to sleep on the streets if I had to. So where did you sleep the first night? I ended up sleeping at... Um, this woman named Nancy Jameson's house who directed this food program called Fair Foods, where she would go and take food that was going to be thrown out from the big produce market and from the big food warehouse. Yeah. She would just rent these like budget trucks and have these guys who were like out of prison, like needing to get volunteer hours for their welfare checks or something. And so anyway, she had this house and she was like, you, 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 work for me for, you know, 10 to 15 hours a week and I'll provide housing for you. And I just had like a little room and it was like a really rundown house. And she wasn't even a believer, but I felt like she was a person of peace Yeah, where it's like God had given me favor with her. And I felt like if she came to Christ, then maybe other people would come to Christ. And she had a real heart for the poor that I needed to learn from Mm -hmm. and um, a real solidarity with the poor. And so um, she put me up. She's an old, older woman, like in her 60s. She put me up for the first few months there. Wow. And then you eventually planted a church there? Yep. Ended up um, one of the places I was delivering food for with Fair Foods was to um, a little abandoned auto repair shop that had turned into a food pantry and thrift shop called Mastis's Place. Um, it's like short for um, my sister's place. Um, and a elderly African-American woman um, named Idine Wilkerson. And she's like famous in Boston, right? Oh yeah, she's big big time there. She uh, She's like the mother Teresa of Boston. Right. She's been written up about in the Globe and other things. But she grew up in the South 
um, with MLK and Rosa Parks and Montgomery, Alabama, and fled like so many African Americans to the North to seek economic opportunity and to, to kind of flee the race, the racism of the South, um, and came up to, to Boston in the sixties and seventies and, uh, really raised her family right around there. But she just really helped people with food, clothing, prayer. And she had a vision that there would be prayer in this abandoned auto repair shop. And so she invited me to, to lead prayer. And she thought I she thought me as a 22-year-old white boy from the suburbs of Richmond was going to be able to reach the urban youth that were involved in gangs. And I was like, that's a big, <laughs> it's a big cultural barrier, socioeconomic <laughs> barrier, but, uh, you know, we'll try. And uh, that, So you tried. We tried, yeah. And we unintentionally planted a church there. The Bible study turned into a church. Um, I uh, met a young woman named Amy, who was a campus minister in Worcester, an hour outside of Boston. And we, she came to that first Bible study, which was our first date. We were married a year later, and they were calling us pastors. And we were like, what do we get ourselves into? And it was one of the hardest and most beautiful experiences of our life. That's not a very typical way to meet your future wife. <laughs> it's not. But we were both poor and we both loved Jesus and knew we were called. And so we were like, whatever, whatever it takes. I mean, I was living on less than a dollar a day, intentionally poor. So I don't know what she saw in me. <laughs> I didn't have a car. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't like, and this was a lot of this was intentional poverty. And, and, but it, it really, you know, so much of the way that we do mission today is like the rich help the poor, yeah. the educated help the poor, the resource help the poor. And I really just felt convicted that that ministry needs to go two ways. And and one of the reasons that Jesus said, give up everything when he sent his disciples out to preach and to heal in the villages and the surrounding towns was because he wanted them to be in a position where they had to receive from other people um, for their physical needs, for a roof over their head and for food in their bellies. And that would create a two-way relationship so they could minister spiritually. And it was amazing how that um, commitment really helped bridge a lot of the age barriers, the racial barriers, the socioeconomic barriers, because I had put myself under where I was literally dependent on poor people to take care of me. So how long were you living poor? I don't know how else to say it. Yeah, it was like um, probably about a year. I mean, getting married to Amy was like, okay, we're going to start. <laughs> Part of getting married is like, you got to step it up a little bit, right? So um, you're, you are no longer making these decisions, but your spouse is making them with you. Did she fall out of love with you once you became like living the white suburban life? <laughs> no, Amy is committed to... Um, simplicity but she likes cleanliness yeah and uh she you know so anyways she um yes yeah, so i would say it was we've always lived by faith but we've been married 15 years now mm. but yeah we all of our needs are taken care of We're, we live a very middle class yeah. lifestyle now and i realized that the goal can never be poverty in and of itself that mm. the goal has to be people like and i think that you can worship you can worship money being poor just as you can worship money being rich. Meaning that it's like, how much does money consume? How much you think? Yeah. And you can be, and there were times when I was poor that I was tempted to steal and that I was tempted to just dream about being rich all the time. Yeah. And it's like that proverb that says, give me neither poverty nor riches, um, but give me my daily bread. Because if if I'm rich, then I'll be tempted to forget you. But if I'm poor, I'll be tempted to steal. Yeah. And and I realized that actually, like poverty as the as as the goal was was really not the right goal to have. The real goal is ministry to people, and I feel like that's where the Lord 
called me to that first season of my own formation. And I think that I never, I'm always like, I never want to get to a place where I'm so complacent um, that I'm never open to doing something radical like that. But it definitely changes when you have a wife and kids. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not just about your decision anymore. Yeah. So do you think that that's a message that a lot of people who work in relief or work with the poor, do you think that that's a message that a lot of people miss? Um, I think to a certain degree. I mean, I think that one of the challenges when it comes to international relief and development is that we have an economy now where scale is everything. So the, the more you can scale and grow an organization, the more supposed impact you can have because the economies of scale, like things are less expensive, the more you buy in bulk, right? Like, um, and you can kind of, you know, have these technological infrastructures, administrative infrastructures that allow you to, to, to serve more people. And so I understand that that's the economy we live in today. But I think one of the challenges is that you can sometimes take 18 full-time salaries to help one poor person in need. And I think that, you know, I live in Washington, D.C., in the capital, and there's a lot of people called to public service and called to relief and development. Mm -hmm. But it's so easy to get disconnected from the people whom you're serving, whether you're elected in Congress or whether you're doing, you know, international work. And so I think um, whether it is um, living a lifestyle intentionally of poverty for your whole life or doing things like we did this summer when I went to Liberia and we went to the villages and I walked around with the kids in the villages with, you know, the kids that live on less than a dollar a day who are just so full of faith in life that it just, it wrecks you. You know, yeah. like our family came out of that and we're like, we were motivated to save all summer to be able to send, you know, them some support to get some animals to provide food for them. You know, my kids were motivated by that. And so I think there's just like, there's something about the way that God forms us through the stories of those who are poor, that we need it as much as they need, mm, yeah. you know, the economic development. And I think it's just easy to get isolated from the poor and to think that their suffering isn't that bad. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, the, the short answer to your question is yes, I think it is an issue. And I think it's only the gospel um, that really calls us to make those sacrifices. Because without the gospel, without Jesus, it is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Like, let's enjoy all the pleasures of this life, which does not include <laughs> sacrificially serving the least of these. Right, right, it's a real right. crisis, I think, for for the church to wake up to that. And, um, and, you know, it's something that it's so easy for me as an upwardly mobile white male in society to who benefits from the stru structures and systems of the society. So if I put it on cruise control, the more I get disconnected from the needs of the world and from the needs of DC. And that's a, that's a real problem for me spiritually. So when you're doing this intentional poverty, um, you know, I think in some ways it's easy to think about doing it and to actually do it is, is certainly very courageous. I feel like three months into it has got to be the motivation, you know, sort of worn off. You've gone through your first Boston winter, like all of these <laughs> yeah. different things. Like mm -hmm. how did you stay in it? Yeah. So, um, that's a good question because it really is hard and you have, you have to, so this is the crisis I faced in my development as a 22 year old young Christian who, you know, thought like every 22 year old that I could change single-handedly change the world by my own self effort and will. Right. But I think that the, the real crisis for me or temptation for me was to place my identity as an incarnational urban minister who is sacrificially serving the 
poor. Mm. And, and this came to a head right when me and Amy got married. And I had made the assumption that she was going to move in with me to the crack house that my sis had given me the keys to to take care of and to fix up. Wait, you're living in a crack house? Yeah, and I was. Li- I had fixed it up a little bit, and <laughs> there were still people like doing drugs on the first floor. But we were up on the third floor. If you know anything about Boston Row houses in Dorchester, you know the second and third floor is a long ways from the first floor. So you know whatever. <laughs> and um, and Amy was like, I mean, it was like a pink bathroom. It was gro- It was a gross house, and they they infested with drugs before I moved in. And I had like summer interns living in there and other things, and. I just assumed because like Amy met me and I was like all in living this way that she was going to move in. And she was like, no, like she didn't make that assumption. And I was like, and and I realized the reason that conversation, it was, I mean, this was a heart to heart, heart, mm. one of those early marriage, hard conversations. Like you're worried, like, are we going in the same direction? Right, right. Like, did I get married to the right person kind of thing? Yeah. We were sitting there talking and I realized in talking to her that my identity was in how other people saw me. And that if I didn't live there, that wasn't radical enough huh. and that like I wouldn't be as incarnational or as, wow. you know, justice oriented yeah. as I wanted to. And I was like, that is horrible. Like, that's horrible to place your identity in that. Right. Like my identity isn't Jesus. I'm living for an audience of one. I want, I'm here to bring glory to him. And however his call manifests on my life, whether I'm, you know, in, in the ivory tower or on the streets, like doesn't matter as long as I'm being faithful to him and willing to go anywhere and do anything to serve him. Like that's got to be my motivation. So she, and that's part of what marriage does is it reveals your motivations right. and just a little bit. Yeah. And so it was like, <laughs> it was, I had unsanctified, I had unsanctified motivations that were the, the end goal was holy, but the process was, was not sanctified. And I think she helped. So we ended up moving like a mile from the ministry uh-huh. and in South around the border, South Boston and Dorchester, right next to the, the Metro. Um, and it ended up, or I guess they call it the T in Boston yeah. uh, here in DC, they call it the Metro. Um, and, but that was like God's hand because we ended up going to grad school while we were doing this urban ministry. And we wouldn't have been able to get up to Cambridge and Amy over to, to Brighton to do school while we were doing that. And it's just like, you know, Amy is just like way wiser than I am. So <laughs> she, she knew that. So anyways, yeah. I just love the picture of you living in a crack house, serving the poor and somebody coming up to you and being like, dude, you're so proud. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But there's, there, it's underlying, right? It's all there. Yeah. And you know, that, that voice is, is my wife, not just some random person right? Right. <laughs> that I can just write off and be like, whatever, you're proud and move right. on. Uh, yeah. But it's like, no, when it's your spouse. God bless Amy. Yeah. She's a lot of my spiritual growth is credited to her. I think a lot of husbands can say the same thing about their wives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> then you wrap up in Boston and how do you make your way down to DC? So I um, was going to Gordon Conwell, um, great school. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. <laughs> yes. And, yes. uh, so I was going to, I was taking some classes at Gordon Conwell. I had met Jim Wallace, who was the leader of Call to Renewal and Sojourners Anti-Poverty right. Organization based in DC with a magazine. And I took his class at Harvard. Yeah. He encouraged me to go to the Kennedy School, wrote a rec- letter of recommendation for me to go to study public policy at Harvard. I ended up doing that. So I was brought on at um, Call to Renewal Sojourners. Um, they merged as one to basically implement this vision of doing justice revivals. And we planned a couple of really big ones, one in Columbus, Ohio, and one in um, Dallas, Texas. 
Um, and it was really cool to just do local organizing with a national group around anti-poverty work. So that's what brought me to DC 11 years ago. And then how did you decide to go plant district? Yeah. So, um, I loved what I was doing with Jim Wallace, but the challenge was the better I was getting at my job, the more I had to be on the road. And, uh, we had just adopted our first son, Elijah and, my wife, Amy, was a foster care social worker, but she had quit her job to be at home with Elijah. And I just realized the more I put into my job, the less of a husband, less of a father, and less of a neighbor mm. um, I was becoming. And it was kind of that like upwardly mobile, young professional, like consultant life that like so many people live in DC. Right. Because the mission's always beyond DC. And I was just like realized like I'm not becoming the person. I, even though I'm doing work that I enjoy, I'm not becoming the person that I want to become. And I felt like our marriage and our life were going in separate directions. So it was through that pain that God called us back to the local church. And we said, what if we started a church intentionally? Like Boston was an unintentional church that we pastored for five years. And what if we intentionally planted a church? What would that look like here in DC? How would it try to bring together the two DCs? And how would we bring together the best of the Billy Graham tradition with the best of the Dr. King tradition? Um, kind of that evangelical injustice streams coming together. And so kind of through the, the pain of that season, God really birthed um, a heart for us to stay in DC and to plant a church. And how many years ago was that? That was eight years ago. And that was another, you know, just like moving to Boston, step of faith. It was like a step of faith to quit my job, to go full time with the church, both me and Amy, and to be raising kids. And DC is expensive. We didn't have a big sending church or a lot of people to start with. So we started with like 10 people in our home and very little funding. And um, it's been really cool to see how the Lord has just blessed that over the years. But it was, a, you know, we didn't know if anybody was going to be a part of this. So I wanted to call this out as a white pastor of a multi-ethnic, racially diverse urban church. A lot of times you'll have to sort of lay aside your white majority culture. But because you had such an, a diverse background, a diverse upbringing, do you still feel like you need to let go of your majority white culture? Or is it easier for you because of the diversity of your upbringing? Yeah, I've always been cro a cross-cultural kid um, where I've, I've never been fully myself in majority white culture. Mm. Um, so I've always enjoyed being kind of like a, it's called third culture kid sometimes, right. you know, where you don't really feel at home in any culture. So I've always had that and, and relate cross-culturally, but I still, you know, I'm still a white male at the end of the day. And it's, you know, things are easier when they're done <laughs> according to your own style or preference. Right. So I think that when Christ is really formed in me and I'm surrendered to the spirit, then I'm really owning my own privilege and entering into the pain of other people's stories. Um, but, you know, if it's just me, then I'm like, you know, let's just do things the most efficient way possible. And which is the majority culture, which is mostly white, you know, <laughs> so it's like, yeah, my point is, is like, yes, I have a foundation, but that doesn't mean that I understand the pain that a lot of people have experienced in their own life. And so I'm always trying to learn and be sensitive to that. Um, while also like ma not majoring on things that are important, but not the most important. And I think that for me, reconciling people to Christ is primary. Reconciling people to one another is related, yeah. but not the main thing. And I think sometimes we make the horizontal justice work the end goal. And they're always, they're always related, but I want to break down racial and economic barriers because I want to see the kingdom of God advance and people come to know Christ fully and be discipled fully, which means 
bringing like Christ, we we're one to Christ within our culture. And so many people have to leave their culture to come to Christ. And that's not how he did it. He incarnated himself in the culture. Yeah. So we try to help create environments at the district church where people are able to bring their culture, but it's really messy because then not every one culture is fully represented. Right. It takes sacrifice on everybody's part. But if you can cast that kingdom vision and provide meaning to the sacrifice, then I think we can try to get closer to actually being the church um, where we're leading on issues of race and justice rather yeah. than just following society. And I think too often young people come into the church kind of more woke by what's being talked about in society than what's being talked about in the Bible. And I think part of my heart is that we would be leading a conversation um, in the church on issues of of justice, um, just much like the church used to lead the way in creating art and shaping culture. And uh, I think far too often we just try to catch up and follow the culture. So it's like being intentional and purposeful in your discomfort, not just being discomfort, uh, uncomfortable for the sake of being uncomfortable, but actually to do that to reach someone else. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and I think that's what's wrong with like the kind of the secular social justice movement. So much of mm -hmm. what is talked about is good and true and biblical. But like justice or equality as an end goal in itself is incomplete because it doesn't deal with it deals with the sin um, in society that's manifested with the you know unjust structures and distribution of resources. But it doesn't answer the deeper question of why do those injustices why were those injustices created in the first place? And that's because of sin that actually exists in all of our hearts. And so if I'm not dealing with that while I'm also dealing with the sin in society, then the oppressed just become the next oppressors. And we're not actually becoming um, the community that I think Christ is calling us to be here on this earth. And that's the harder part. That's the harder, longer work. And I think more people have been more formed in a notion of justice in society than they have in the church. And yet the Bible talks about these issues a lot. So um, we have a real opportunity, I think, as as churches to, to lead the way and, and, you know, stuff like what you do at IJM is, is so crucial to that. Mm, yeah. So not everybody who's listening can have an experience where, you know, they're held hostage and, you know, Jesse Jackson is negotiating their release. And, <laughs> but there are people who look at either district church or some of the experiences that you've had and said, I would love to be there. I'd love to do that. Um, and certainly your, the place where you are has been formed by your past experiences, but what advice would you give someone who's looking at where you're at and says, I would love to take a step towards, you know, arriving there and getting there? Yeah. I think I would ask the question of like, what is there? What is there? Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of times we're tempted if we're, you know, if we're young in ministry or we're young in our calling to think that when we get there wherever there is, that we will be fulfilled. Mm. And, you know, what I've found is that if you're not content pastoring, let's just say you're called to be a pastor. Um, if you're not content pa pastoring a group of 12 people and loving the church when it's 12 people, you're not going to be content when it's 120 people or 1,200 people or 12,000 people. Yeah. And you've got to love the church at every stage, just like you got to love a child at every stage and enjoy the uniqueness of that season. And I think that um, every, you know, what I've experienced is that, you know, leadership is pain management and that the more Moss and Boston used to always say, be careful what you pray for, because like when God answers your prayers and you are given more influence or a larger church or, you know, the fulfillment of whatever, wherever there is for you, that that comes at great sacrifice. It comes with great stress. 
And, you know, it's very rewarding though, Mm -hmm. but it comes with great sacrifice. And so I guess what I'm, what I'm, would want to encourage people is, is to not give into the thinking that, that everything's going to be great there when you get, when you get wherever, Yeah. like, who are you called to be? What are your values? What are your convictions? And those can stay the same, no matter how much applause you're getting externally, how things, how well things are going externally, you know, if you're supposedly winning at everything you do. And um, for me, I think God had to strip me from all those worldly accolades for me to be able to be given some of the influence I've been given. And a lot of it's because I don't, it's, that's not why I do what I do. I'll walk away from any of that power influence because that's not what it's about. That's not actually what's fulfilling. And so um, some people ask me, young ministers, like, I want to preach. Like, I want to learn how to preach and stuff like that. And how do you do this? And I just wish I could preach more and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I never like wanted to be a preacher. Like, I don't, like I want to minister the gospel. I want to see people come to know Christ. I feel called to lead. Yeah. And preaching is just a way to do that. Like, but like I don't have to stand on a stage to do ministry. I don't even have to have a pastor or a local church to do that. Right. And the thing about the people in our city in DC, I love DC. I'm called here. I love it. One of the challenges in politics is that people get addicted to getting reelected. Uh-huh. And the reason I think people get addicted, and it's a real crisis for democracy. Sure. Um, and I think the reason that people get addicted to reelection is because their identity gets placed in being a politician and being known in this way. But my challenge for elected officials is, are you called to public service? And if you're called to public service, there's a lot of ways to serve the needs of our nation and world besides being elected. That's one way. And that's a high calling. And I wish more people would run for office. Right. But you can serve it as a lawyer, as a doctor, as a pastor, as a community organizer, as a social worker, as a nurse. as like, And so that's the thing that I like, really hope people realize is that wherever there is for you, there's an, a bunch of other challenges. So just be faithful in the season that you're at. And if you think that you know exactly where you're going to be in five or 10 years, <laughs> It's, my God has an interesting way of, you know, taking us in places that we might never choose ourselves, but are actually where we need to go. So, well, I mean, it's interesting because the it, it reminds me of the conversation that you had with Amy mm-hmm. um, about your identity being wrapped up in you know living in this crack house and and living amongst the poor and you know being able to separate the activity of your ministry from the identity of your ministry mm-hmm. and being able to just transcend that and and be able to just sort of boil out the the core of what it is that makes you do what you do. Yeah, totally. And that, isn't that what, no matter if you're called to leadership or wherever you are in your walk with Christ, it's so much around identity and like finding your identity in Christ. Like I'm about to go now to meet with a guy who had such a powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit. Um, this fall at our church, he came to faith in Christ and we're meeting up because he really wants to grow in Christ. And like, he's a brand new Christian, but isn't that the same message for him right. around my identities in Christ? It's not in what I right. do and how many ministry teams I sign up for and how fast I become a small group leader and, you know, how much public service is in my job here in DC. And, you know, cause it's such a sin to make money in DC, but as long as you're serving, you know, the public, you know, in government or nonprofit, that's like somehow seen higher. And it's like, it's just like, you know, not like every God is calling is so unique on each of our lives and it's our lives bringing glory to him is our identity rooted to him. 
what do we do? Who are we doing it for? And those are the things like, even at my age 38, I'm constantly challenged by every day. You don't ever outgrow that. And so I'm preaching to myself. (laughs) That's awesome, man. Yeah. Well, thank you for what you do, Richard. Richard Lee is the bomb. He's been preaching at district church, bringing the heat to people, (laughs) encouraging the saints. Whenever he comes, like all of IJM comes. It's going to be my ringtone now. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) But it's just awesome how you convene leaders and speak life into so many churches, including our own. Cool, man. And uh, that you're doing this podcast. So I'm praying that it just catches fire and lots of people are able to to listen. Amen. If you can get Rick Warren to pray for it, that'd be great. (laughs) Amen. Okay, we'll work on that. In some ways, Aaron's story is so unique. Being a hostage of an Iraqi dictator, having thousands of people pray for your release, living among the poor in Boston for a year, all these things make his story different than yours and mine. But in other ways, it's the same story. Conflict, strife, and redemption. And at the end of the day, doesn't our history contain the same elements? Maybe I'm putting too fine a point on it, but I found comfort in seeing the same themes, even in a very different story. Well, you can find Aaron on Twitter at Aaron Graham DC. And if you're in DC, you can find the church at districtchurch.org. Just make sure you don't visit on a week I'm preaching because you may leave disappointed. And I put in the show notes a link to a four-part award-winning series by the Boston Globe about the church he planted while living in Boston. And if you've been following The Pursuit, thank you. Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes to help us reach more people. You can find us at The Pursuit Cast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And as we go, remember, you may not know where your journey ends, but you can find God all along the path. I was going to I was going to yell the mascot but then I was like there's no, oh, mascot. there's no mascots for seminaries. <laughs> seminaries have no school prize sense of identity or stuff like this. This is something we should change. If Scott Sunquist, the new president of Gordon Conwell is listening to this, I That's think right. one of your- But you know there's no way he's listening to this. <laughs>